Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Every week, it's my goal to share a story of someone's journey through their life and financial vineyard. We take you from their roots to the journey of their vines and the influences in the air that have helped craft their delicious lives. Like wine, life and finances have different palates that should be celebrated and not judged. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. Today's guest is Steve Jutton. If that last name Jutton sounds familiar, it's because you've heard from his wife not once, but twice, Nancy Jutton. We're thrilled to have Steve on the show. Steve is also a financial planner. And I think one of the unique talents that Steve has is that he has taken some of the most famous shows that we've watched, like The Wizard of Oz and Downton Abbey, and he has taken financial lessons out of that. Steve has a comical blog that you may want to follow yourself. And I think you're going to enjoy this episode where we talk finance, wine, and other financial planning stuff. Sit on back, grab your favorite beverage, and enjoy the show. Well, Steve, thank you so much and welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you today. Um, For those that don't know, Steve is a special guest that was introduced to me by his lovely wife. And I'm so thrilled to have you here. And I know we'll have to be super careful because I think you have an affiliation and passion for wine as well. (laughs) So welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, shout out to my beautiful and lovely wife, Nancy. So let's start as our typical way that we do. Um, Do you have a particular type of wine or favorite wine that you you have in your cupboard at all times or for special occasions? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I actually we actually have a couple and I'm, I'm delighted to share. So we're here in the Pacific Northwest. So we're partial to California wines and even Pacific Northwest wines. And uh, for those of you who are, are interested, the Columbia Valley is outside of Portland, and they have among the best Merlot out there in the world. And believe it or not, one of them is called Columbia Crest, and their Merlot is just, um, is just perfect. And we always have <laughs> a fair amount of that sitting around. And, and the other one is, believe it or not, we are great Prosecco drinkers. Oh, and okay. It, yeah. Yep. And when we moved into our new house here about 18 months or so ago, and we had an open house for everybody, we were we were flowing the Prosecco in particular. And this isn't very sophisticated, but if you've ever heard of it, it's called La Marca. And it's great Prosecco. So I, I um, we have that around and we have two bottles sitting in the refrigerator. And I guarantee you one of those will go tonight, just so you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> we, we find that it pairs well with everything. And it's kind of, you, you're, you're more of an aficionado than I am, but we, we kind of have evolved. And I have tried just about everything that I can think of. And I have a client who has two investments in two wineries in California. No kidding. And you've heard this joke, you know, how do you make a million dollars in the wine business? Start with two million. Oh yeah, start with, I was going to say, start, yeah, I was going to say don't, yeah. <laughs> but um, so we're, we're kind of always, and Nancy's from California and I spent a long time there. So we have always been on the fringes of it. And um, the best golf courses that I've played are all amongst the vineyards. Mm. So on and on and on. So a great af- uh, affinity for wine. And that was one of the reasons I was delighted to be a guest because I knew you and I could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually going to be drinking a Cab Franc Rosé this evening. Um, it's from a German um, winemaker who is from the Finger Lakes of New York. Actually, I mean, that's where he lives now, but he was originally from... Germany and it's spelled like Weiss, but it's pronounced Weiss. Um, lovely, uh, lovely winemaker. Uh, my husband and I have been to his winery many, many times. And when we came down to Florida for this uh, winter, we made sure we had quite a, a stock of both the, the regular Cab Franc as well as the Cab Franc Rosé. But I felt like tonight seemed like a rosé kind of night. And I am absolutely going to have some. <laughs> <as> well. <laughs> well, thank you so, for sharing yeah, that. I, I hear you. And Go ahead. You're so very welcome. And I was just going to say, I'm going to go through, I've, I've listened to a number of your podcasts as you and I were chatting about. I think I'm going to go through and make a list of all the recommendations, you know, and right. So, so here's a, here's a definition of success. I want to try every wine that has been recommended on uh, wine and dime. What do you think? I think it's phenomenal. I do believe <laughs> it, it, I, one of the um, guests that I had on recommended conundrum. I don't know if you've heard heard of that one or not but that one is a really good red, red blend that it's a fun one too um but you know we, when you think about what we do for a life for our business and for a, a lifestyle in a way um you know there's often conundrums so <laughs> i thought that was like the perfect wine <laughs> for financial planners to have on hand so noted so noted <laughs> well good let's dig into your actually journey. and that's gonna that's excuse me for interrupting i was gonna say that's gonna you just tricked off something here and i'm writing a note right now i um one of the things you and I will talk about is I often use other life events or other life circumstances to talk about financial planning matters. Mm-hmm. And I just know in here, there's going to be some connection between either being a uh, owning a vineyard or um, having a variety of wines for a variety of situations. You know, when you retire, it should be a dessert wine, you know, <laughs> and when you're doing college planning, it should be, I, I don't know, something that can stay in power. So <laughs> port. <laughs> port. Excellent. <laughs> or that or is that taxes? Actually, I wrote a book um, called Uncork Your Finances. And in the book, each chapter um, had a wine paired with it. So when it came to the, ah. the taxes section, it actually was um, grab a port, maybe two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd love to dig in to learn more about your journey. And and you're absolutely right. When we think about how a vineyard is formed, right? And and the very base of a vineyard, you know, there's the soil, right? And everybody kind of has their own surrounding, their own influences and how they're planted and everything like that. But we all sort of have the, the different 
way our vines grow, right? But I'd love to learn um, your journey, particularly always interested in the journey of another financial planner, because years ago, this wasn't a profession that you quote unquote chose for a career. I mean, it kind of chose you. Um, it, it was uh, it, it wasn't like you went to college for financial planning. And so when I get the chance to talk to financial planners that have some experience behind them. Um, and by experience, I'm meaning like the good old days when, when it was tough in this profession. Not that it's not tough now. I don't want to give the perception that that's the case, but tough in the fact that there wasn't an education system that we could actually go through to learn about financial planning other than just pure experience, where now there's a great programs out there that actually teach people some of this stuff. So I'd love for you to share the, the formation of your vineyard and your journey. Uh, thank you. And Nancy was very excited about this because she is convinced that I was meant to be a financial planner from about the age of seven. And so we're going to go back a few years <laughs> and I'll start with it and I'll give you the abridged version of it. But so when I was seven years old, my dad lost his job. So he, this was before ERISA was passed. And my dad lost his job, and he, I'm the youngest of five kids, and my mom was a, a, was a part-time school teacher. So here my dad is without a job, and they fired him even though he didn't have – and he didn't get any pension benefits, no benefits whatsoever. And so here he is at an elderly age with a family to support and no pension. And that made an impression on me because all of a sudden, whereas before we were very middle class, uh, all of a sudden we were, we were struggling. Now, we always managed to have enough to eat. That's not it. But it really struck me. And at an impressionable age of like seven, it's like, oh, my gosh, what changed, right? And so fast forward, I went to – made it through um, graduate school. And uh, I have a master's degree in English. And there's going to be a point to that in a minute. So I went to work. And in 1975, ERISA was passed. And for those of you that know, don't know, ERISA is E-R-I-S-A. And it stands for every ridiculous idea since Adam. No, 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 no. It stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. But um, so my, uh, so I went from my dad not having any benefits at all to going to work in uh, for a company doing their ERISA communications. So I started out with, and I had a degree, I had a master's in English and started doing uh, benefits communications. And I did that for about 28 years, believe it or not, through various companies, consulting firms. And in, in along the line, I picked up a number of different things. But there were two items that were always a, a foundational. One is this whole business about uh, security and retirement. It was always in the back of my mind, even when I was a small, even when I was first married and I don't know. The other one was, look, I have a I have a degree in, in communications kind of stuff, right? And I love to write. Um, there are planners that come to this and they are technically proficient. You know, there's basically three ways to get into this. You can be you can be an investment person, you can be a numbers person. And in my case, my you know, my secret sauce is being able to explain complex financial issues in understandable ways. Because in ERISA, it, the basic cornerstone of ERISA is that you do communications that are meant to be understood by the average plan participant, right up my alley. So when I started my own financial planning firm in 2001, 
um, that has always been the cornerstone, which is we take complex financial concerns and try to make them understand by the av- understandable by the average person. So there you go. There's my there's my journey. I'll give you one more side note on this. The reason I switched to being a financial planner is I worked for large consulting firms and our clients were companies, right? And their employees. And I kind of got tired of working with committees and decided I wanted to work with individuals uh, because somewhere in the back of my mind is this interest in trying to help individuals. And it's hard to do when you're working with a large company. So now we work with individuals. So there's my journey. How's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you knew this or, or not. I don't know if Nancy brought you up to speed, but um, I spent a few years myself uh, working in the plan administration and and communication to 401k participants. She did mention that, and, and that's one of the reasons I brought it up. Is I thought, okay, there's another shared interest you and I have. We could yeah. we just go ahead and just talk about how it's how it's like to be in the ERISA world all it, all day it, long. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting about that from a financial planner's perspective, I really value that time that I spent out in that environment as a introvert. Um, standing up in front of sometimes 50, 60, 70 people in a room and talking to them about uh, their plan and investment options, that was definitely pushing me outside my comfort zone. But, you know, uh, often, oftentimes people would come up to me afterwards and probably you as well and say, you know, really enjoy this. It kind of makes sense, you know, but what about my kid's education or what about, you know, life insurance or what about, you know, what about, what about, what about, right? So it really, uh, it really set me in the right position to start thinking about what about, you know, all these different things. And um, I think it's a great training for people that are listening that are ever thinking about getting into this profession or, you know, career changing or whatever. It's a fabulous place to cut your teeth because you really do learn a lot about people. And and I would agree. Yeah. So you you do. And there's such a need for it. Yeah, there is. You did that for 20 some years. You said 28 years. I did. And then uh, and foolishly decided to start my own business. (laughs) <laughs> I don't believe for a minute that it's foolishly. <laughs> so you, in 2001, you said you became an entrepreneur. You decided to start your own business. What was the reason that drove you to do that? Like why at that point in time were you driven to, to start your own business? Well, because our son was born. And, it's, and uh, I say this all the time, it's his fault. I, I, I did not, as a consultant, I traveled a lot. And when you're up here in the upper left-hand corner of the country, there aren't, you can't go north and you can't go west. So I was always traveling and uh, we decided that I wanted to be, we meaning my wife and I decided that I wanted to have more of a hand in it. And I was ready for a change anyway. You'll find, at least in my life, there there has always been, a, I, I'm always on the top of the mountain looking to, to see where the next challenge is going to be. And um, so two things. One, I wanted to be home with our son and the flexibility of running your own business was very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And the other part was I really just did want to work with individuals instead of work with companies. Mm-hmm. Companies have their own dynamics. You know this. 
uh, I sat in so many committee meetings and had groupthink and all the other kinds of things. I wanted to work with the decision maker, which is the individual. So it was a combination of both of those, more flexibility, change in lifestyle, and a chance to work directly with the uh, with clients instead of going through committees or large companies yeah. or whatever. Totally, totally get it. Yeah. So when you decided to do that, I, I mean, you know, when you think about the formation of your vineyard, who did you... Again, 2001, there weren't a whole lot of registered investment advisory firms out there, not compared to what exists now. Um, who did you look to? Who did you look up to or who served as a sort of a guide in, in that journey? Great, a great question and a simple answer. Do you know Cheryl Garrett? I do. Yeah. So she has been my mentor for over 20 years. And I started out right away doing some research and discovered, the first of all, the hourly fee-only model. And so I've been a member of the Garrett Network since the beginning. And she, in, in fact, um, in the first book that I wrote, she actually wrote one of the testimonials for it. And she's been a guide to me ever since. So that one's real easy. Cheryl has been an inspiration and a source of resources and assistance and just general support for all of those years. Mm -hmm. So she was the first one. The second one, interestingly enough, have you ever heard of a book called The Coffee House Investor? I don't recall that one. So it was written by a guy by the name of Bill Schulteis, who is out here in the Seattle area. And the Coffeehouse Investor, um, he, he, he wrote the book, and it's really meant to be just for the Coffeehouse Investor, which is investing made simple, and that's where it comes from, the Coffeehouse. And I reached out to him and told him that I really loved his book, and he sort of reached out to me back and we struck up a conversation and we've been friends for over 25 years now. And so those are, those are my two greatest inspirations, Cheryl Garrett and then Bill Schulteis. Yeah. I, um, I mean, when I said, I know Cheryl, I don't, I mean, I don't know her per, like personally, she and I have never spoken, but I certainly know who she is. And she's certainly been an inspiration in many ways over the years. When I decided to start my own business, I did look at her, her model, um, because I wanted to be a flat fee firm. I wanted to, to start my own business that way. And certainly she had the framework uh, around that a bit. Um, but this other organization that was coming along called XYPN, uh, planning network at the time, uh, there were some people that I knew that, um, as a, as colleagues that were joining. And I said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll join back then. It was like, I don't know, 50 people or something, 50 of us. Now it's like over a thousand. So <laughs> yes. very different organization now, but yeah. uh, had, had XYPN not be then around, uh, I'm quite sure that, that Cheryl would have been the, the network that, or her network, Garrett, Garrett Planning Network would have been the, the route that I went. What did you find to be some of the, Under the biggest challenges at that time? Like where, where did you pull your nutrients from? <laughs> and you were right in that it, it, it was a lot harder then than it is now, just because there were not many independent registered investment advisory firms. And I was adamant about doing it my own way. But having come from the consulting world, I didn't want to be part of a partnership anymore. And so I wanted to be independent. And at the time, and still is, you have a choice to make whether you want to be registered federally or whether you want to be registered for the state. And since I was, I wanted to start out being state registered and, and, and did that. So in our world, as you well know, we're heavily compliance driven and I needed a way to get the compliance stuff taken care of. 
And that was that was one of the nutrients is I just drew from the state, which was they were helping me set it up and to do it mm-hmm. correctly. And I was a state registered advisor, my own firm um, for 19 years. And then most recently, we made a change to join a larger SEC registered investment advisory firm. But that was one of them. And then then it was a Garrett Network because they're really all about getting advisors to get started up and all of their tools now you, you add to these, and this is like the fine winemaker. They 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 start with um, they learn from someone, I presume, right? And then they start to add their own <clears throat> special touches, and they do it a certain way. And that's that's basically how my business has grown. Just to torture this image a little bit longer, I found out what what worked and what didn't work, and I you probably feel the same way. I'm so sorry and grateful to all my early clients. They suffered with me as I learned, and I'm I, I if I could go back and find my first client, I would probably just uh, thank them again and again and again. I don't think I've made any horrible mistakes, but I'm so much of a better planner now. And you have to learn as you go along. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, um, the the going independent was because of the models out there, like the fee model, like that, and the age that I wanted to work with. Like that was that was sort of the driving force to me. Was I wanted to I wanted the ability to work with people that were my age, which a lot of their assets and net worth is tied up in their company's retirement plan and their house and their kid, you know, kids. Like their net worth is not does not fit within the normal model of the AUM model that's out there. And so that was probably the driving factor for me to say, I want to go start this firm. But the, the fear that a lot of people do have is in it and it's with, it's warranted to a certain extent, but it's not warranted. I think the way people fear it is that compliance hat, right? You mentioned that the regulators are, were very helpful to you and they are, if you, you have questions about starting up your own firm or is your firm goes along the regulators they're there for you like they they want you to do things in a compliant manner so picking up the phone and talking to them is actually appreciated but many people are afraid to do that for whatever reason and i think it's it's like when you think about the vineyard there's a balance of rain and and sun right and you've got to have those balance of guidance and, and nutrients that come in to make anything grow appropriately. So, um, what, um, you mentioned a little bit ago, your book, tell us a little bit about your book and your journey and writing that book, why you decided to write a book. Uh, happy to the, so the, so the book is called, uh, ditch the guesswork. It's how to get maximum ROI for the time starved investor. And in the introduction, I even talk about that, which is, okay, when I did a search on Amazon, there were 320,000 books on investing. So why do we need another bloody book? And it it was an attempt for me to uh, show people how simple it could be because most people, not all, but most people don't want to spend their time worrying about investing. They want to get on with their life or their job or their career or their family or their whatever they enjoy. So the the whole point of the book was to try to make it something that that the average plan participant, quote unquote, could penetrate. And I even wrote it in a different way. I didn't want to write a textbook. So I wrote the story of an advisor talking to two clients. 
and uh, it's 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 Paul and Donna, and I take them through um, in a uh, first person manner. This is what the advisor said, and these are the questions they asked, and I took them through a planning process. Mm-hmm. The whole point being trying to make it accessible, because I, I'm a lifelong learner. In fact, it's one of my core values about learn something new every day. And I have I have shelves full of investing books, and I have shelves full of financial planning books. And one of my goals is I try to try to uh, read twenty books a year at least, wow. and um, and I always have uh, at least three books open at one time. And in fact, one of the stories my dad tells is that I came out of the womb with a book in my hand, and boy, was that hard on my mother. So <laughs> it's just one of the things is that I'm a lifelong learner. So I wanted to write a book that I would have liked to have read if I was not a financial planner. And that was that was the journey. And by doing writing a book, which is a wonderful experience in, in many ways. And it's also, you know, William Faulkner said writing is easy. You just sit down at the at the type, typewriter until the blood flows. And that's exactly right. So that it's not an easy course to do. But I've um, interesting, just as an aside, I'll, I'll mention this to you. Um, I write a book about every other year. And um, this year, we're not going to write a book. We're actually going to do it. We're going to do a YouTube channel. Uh, and we've got the compliance people's approval to do it and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to do a book chapter by chapter on YouTube. And it's a nod towards the digital age that a lot of the studies, as I'm sure you know, people uh, learn more from hearing and seeing something than from just reading it. So we're going to do a book chapter by chapter by chapter. And can I tell you the, the, the tentative title and you tell me what you think? Absolutely. So the title is going to be, You've Worked Your Whole Darn Life, Now What? So I'm open for ideas and suggestions, but we're we're actually going to have the first episode starting in March, and we'll do a YouTube uh, chapter every other week. Well, what's interesting about that is, I mean, people would, I think, listen to it or read it, even if they're not, you know, right in retirement yet. But one of the concerns that I often have for people when they start working with me in those like pre-retirement years, you know, or like not quite at retirement, pre-retirement years is they have work. A lot of people have their job as their identity. And so it's really important for us to think as planners, it's super important for us to think about what is the identity going to be for that person when they're, when their job isn't their identity. And for us to start peppering some ideas and thoughts into their head about, well, what does retirement look like for you? You know, what do you, what's the ideal day look like for you? Cause that's the longest vacation of your life, right? So what does it look like? And uh, making sure that they're emotionally um, prepared as well. Yeah, that's a, I, I love the totally, fact. Totally that, agreed. Uh, go ahead. I, um, that, I want to mention a book for anybody that listens to this that I recommend to everybody. It's the first book we give to anybody when they're when they're five to 10 years out from retirement. And it, and it really looks like that's what they want to start focusing on. The book is called What Color is Your Parachute for Retirement? And it's by Bowles and, Nel- and Nelson. And many people are familiar with the book with the book title, What Color is Your Parachute? And it was about people changing jobs. Mm-hmm. But John Nelson, who is a researcher at the University of Wisconsin and Richard Bowles combined to write this book and it's called What Color is Your Parachute? shoot for retirement. And it asks all the non-financial questions. Mm-hmm. And I actually met John Nelson and uh, have, he's become a colleague of mine because I was sort of fascinated by this part. 
And it goes something like this, that after the money, what is it that leads to retirement success? Mm-hmm. And it boils down to the, to, to, three, to the answers to three questions. So where do you live? What do you do? And who do you do it with? Mm-hmm. So where do you live? What do you do? And who do you do it with? And uh, the where you live is more than just your house. It's the community, the kind of community you want to live in. Do you want to walk to everywhere? Do you want to be able to drive? Do you want acreage? Do you want family and friends around you? But but home is the most important component mm-hmm. in retirement because that's your that's your base, right? Yep. The second question is, what do you do? Gets to the purpose question you were just raising there, and what, what things that we do because every day is Saturday when you're retired. <laughs> uh, what you do falls into three categories. There are there are things that are fun drink wine and, and travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are useful, which is, okay, we need to take care of the house or I, I, I have chores that I need to do. I love to call it the honey-do list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's fun. It's useful. Then the third one is purposeful. And that purposeful part, it means something outside of you. And what we tell our clients is ab- about seven hours a week doing something purposeful. Mm. More than that, it becomes a job. Less than that, and it doesn't give you any rhythm to your days. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell people as well, looking after the grandkids is not purposeful. That's <laughs> part of family, right? But it, it, you have to be careful not to get dragged in to do too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then who do you do it with? And this is a real challenge. And this is a generic comment, so please forgive it. But in general, women do better in retirement than men for this last reason. Men because tend they, they volunteer a lot more. They, yeah. yeah. And they tend to have more friends and they tend to have more network. And men tend to have their friends at their work. And when they're not working, they don't have their friends anymore. But we try to to, uh, have people start thinking about this, just as you were suggesting, early on. Because if you wait until the day you retire, you're out of luck because then it's going to be difficult. And um, let me me tell you one quick story, if I may. So we had a client – that um, worked for an actuarial firm. So very, very smart, very intellectual. And his wife retired a couple of years before he did. And the day that he retired, the, the uh, what we call R1, retirement plus one, his wife sat him down and said, don't expect me to have lunch with you every day. <laughs> it was her way, of, her way of saying, I have my family, I have my friends, I have my purpose. Don't expect me to be the part of that. And it was a shock to him because he was assuming, indeed, that she was going to be the center of his world and he was going to be the center of hers. Not so fast, bucko. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, you know, from my own personal experience, and I know every person is different. Like you said, we don't, we, we don't like to generalize, but um, I, I think what I think what 2020 taught a lot of people is that it's it's lovely to be around our significant others and it's lovely to spend time with them. But there is such a thing of too much time. <laughs> and, you know, you yes. have to have your own sort of interests and activities and um uh, I would say, you know, get out of the house items, you know, those kinds of things, because, um, you know, many people have said that they feel like 2020 was a test of what retirement would be like, and they're not so sure they want to retire. But what I've tried to remind people is that that's not the true test of retirement, that if they're involved in charitable organizations or hobbies or, you know, other groups that are sort of going to take them in different directions, then 
2020 really is an example of what it would be like. But it's a good point to have clear understanding of what what each other's understanding of retirement is, because even though the core value might be the same, the outlying values <laughs> may have some divergence to them. And, and, and I think there's been so many studies that have been done that have said, you know, to keep active, like, you know, the more you keep active in retirement, likely the longer retirement will be, but you've got to keep the mind and the body active. Um, and I think that requires some of your own sort of space and time as well. So, you know, many, speaking of that kind of thing, many uh, vineyards as a general rule or journeys in, in life have, have challenges and obstacles. Uh, are there any that you personally have faced that, you know, you've ever overcome and you would have advice on, or are you currently experiencing any that you'd like to share and provide advice? Uh, it's a good question. There's a couple of things, and I, I want to be careful about this because it's going to sound like a criticism, and it's not meant to be. But you have to know yourself if you're going to have a business. And what do I mean by that? So when I was in the consulting world, I ran a team of 13 people, and it drove me crazy because I want to be a good leader, and I want to be sensitive and aware and, and be a good leader. But I got tired of it because the constant dealing with people's issues just wore me out. So when I quit and started my own business, I said, okay, it's just going to be me and you know maybe an assistant, right? But one of the things that happened is that the business grew and grew and grew, and I kept adding staff. And that's not what I like to do. It's Can I do it? Well, of course I can do it. And, and I've read all the leadership books and men, been to almost all the leadership trainings. But ultimately, I had a conversation with myself and I said, I'm not, I don't like this. It's, mm. not my, it's not my genius. It's not what I do. And so I took steps to pair the company way back down. And again, not because there aren't good, there aren't good financial planning firms, but I'm not that kind of a leader. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. So rule number one was I had to recognize that. And it took me several years to recognize that, mm -hmm. uh, that even though I could, didn't mean I should. <laughs> And that's one of the first rules that I had. The second challenge is that it's not easy, just, you know, speaking of Generation X and, and all of that, it's not easy to find everybody that will pull in the same, same direction. And that is a big challenge. So I set some, I set three rules in our business uh, about 10 years ago when I added the very first advisor. So our three rules are one, assume good intentions. Two, mm -hmm. practice blameless problem solving. Mm -hmm. And three, always put the client first. Mm -hmm. So now, whenever we talk to a potential advisor or um, paraplanner or operations manager or anybody, we talk about that early on. We talk mm -hmm. about the values that we bring to it. And it was a, it was a challenge for me to, to articulate those in a way that people could remember. And if we do those three things, assume good intentions and practice blameless problem solving are the two biggest ones, boy, it sure helps us operate a lot more efficiently and effectively, and we remove a lot of the conflict that occurs. So the first obstacle was knowing myself and recognizing I didn't want to be the biggest firm in the world. And two was surrounding myself with people that were like-minded from a value standpoint. Yeah, I, I think there's a vision sometimes of what success looks like. And we follow that vision until we realize it wasn't our vision of success. You are wise beyond my years. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, the, the, 
I don't know that I've heard you say this. Can I put you on the spot and say, how do you define success? Um, how do I define success? Sure. I mean, I'd be happy to answer that question. Success to me is very much about um, the idea of waking up in the morning and doing what I love and looking myself in the mirror and knowing that um, I've helped people, that I've given back to the community, um, that people know that that I that I very much cherish, that they know that I love them. Um, that's, that's success to me. Um, and, and, you know, and I have, I have other layers of success, like certainly there's personal, you know, personal layers of success, but the big picture really is about, um, feeling fulfilled in those ways, because I just, I think that we are all given gifts on this planet and it just so happened that I was given a gift to work in this profession that I, that I love. And, um, and the fact that I get to share it and I get to share it in a way that I feel is really connected to my core values is very wonderful. And that, you know, it provides for my family at the same time. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. How about you? What's your definition of success? <laughs> Good. Yeah, that's fair. So I, I, I talk about layers, but um, it's going to come out something like this, which is I want to be learning something new every day. And that could be something very, very simple, or it could be something deep and meaningful. But I, I, I'm a, I think of myself as kind of a learning machine, taking in input and, and, and assessing it. And one time I had an assessment done and I was identified as what's called an adaptive learner which is I listen to something that somebody else says and then adapt it and change it a little bit and, and learn from it. And that's helpful because just as a, we overstate this, isn't it amazing how much we learn from our clients? It's astounding. It's astounding. And I am so humble. And I don't, don't mean to make this sound like, oh, you know, I don't have an ego or anything else. Well, of course I do. But if you listen to your clients, oh my goodness, the wisdom about life and in, in general and just learning from their circumstances, it's astounding. So I'm I'm privileged to learn from clients, and I'm also blessed that most of the clients that I deal with are a lot smarter than I am. So if I just shut up and listen, I'll learn from them as well. <laughs> <laughs> and another one would be something about loving and being loved, and that, that's one thing the COVID has taught all of us is the importance, to, you know, in a very micro sense of the family and the family unit and your your partner. Because it's it's so it's so temporary, and this is one of the things going going forward. I hope I don't lose that because I've been reminded of that since I've been around family more than ever before, in a good way, in a good way. And then there's something here in, on my list, and I've always said this: it's living a life of congruence. And I love the word congruence. You know, I was an English major for goodness sake, so I love I love words like congruence, which is really living a life in agreement with my values or living a life of harmony. But I always say living a life of congruence, where I'm, you know, um, know thyself and tell thine own self be true, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So th that's the way I I assess it. And yes, I have some personal goals, and we have business goals and things like that. But it's really around uh, learning and loving and living in congruence. Yeah, and I think. I think that's really important to know what that definition of uh, congruence is, too, because it can mean very different for every person. But, you know, it's what's uh, interesting to me is that most everybody I talk to and, you know, that's one of my favorite questions to ask is what's your definition of success? Most everybody I talk to 
it's very rarely financial. It's, it's most of the time about, um, their family, you know, their, their freedom in some cases, which is supported somewhat by finances, but it's that the true definition of success rarely has to do anything with, with financials. And that's why I think it's so important for people to hear that. I've always said that, you know, investments and in, in, in money are tools, right? That, that get us to our goals, but we've got to know what those core goals are <laughs> in order to, to figure out how we're supposed to use the tools. So, so I appreciate you, you sharing that. And, you know, one of the other final questions that I always like to ask our guests is kind of switch over into what I call nourish your vine section is, you know, if you were to take just a few minutes for our guests to, to provide like the number one financial lesson that you've learned in your life. I'd love to hear that. And I particularly love to ask this question to other financial planners because there's this perception that we've never made a financial mistake in our lives. And <laughs> I, have, I have a financial planner. Even though I am a financial planner, I have a financial planner. And the reason is because of the emotion behind money, right? So I love to hear what other financial planners say about their number one financial lesson. Yeah, good good question. And uh, that, that reminds me, most therapists have therapists, right? And it's the same kind of a concept. And, and, I, and I love that. Good for you. So it, it's funny thing. We tell people we have what are called Steve's 13 rules. And um, I'm going to tell you number two, three, four, five. But rule number two is it doesn't matter what you make. It matters what you keep. Uh, rule number three is a house is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it, not what you think it's worth. But the first rule is live your life consistent with your values. And that means your financial life. So if um, saving for college for the kids is important to you, then do so. But not just because everybody thinks it is. So it's, it's this consistency. And it, you can see it's an outgrowth of my concept of living in congruence. Know your values and then assign uh, th those values accordingly when you're doing your financial Mm -hmm. And uh, here, here's a simple example. You know, the, the, the FIRE movement, the uh, financial independence retire early. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a fine uh, idea, but I don't know that that's a value. You know, I don't know that the value is to retire early. Uh, maybe it is. And then travel or whatever the case may be. But whatever you, whatever you value, and I'll use family as a good example. Look, if family is really important to you, then, then, then invest and, and manage your money accordingly so that it supports your family. So here's a simple example of it. And you've talked about this before. You know that only 60% of people have a will. Is it that high? <laughs> that's the number that's used commonly. Well, if family is important to you, then have a will, you know, have that taken care of. So it's, it's one of those. And when we're working with clients, we start with, if it's a couple, we start with a, with a values exercise. And we have the couple work through their values. Mm -hmm. And until they are in until they're in agreement on their values, it's very difficult for us to do a plan that suits both of them. So that's my number one lesson. You know, live your life according to your values. And that assumes you know what your values are. 
accordingly. And, 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 and one of the things that you can do is because we have every tool in the box, just like you're saying, mm-hmm. but if you, if you're not living consistent with your values, the plan's going to fail because it's gonna, yep, cause you're not going to stick to it. Yep. Exactly right. And, yeah. and, and, and it, and we always tell people this, look, we don't judge anybody. We don't really care what your answer is. We care that you have an answer, yeah. but we don't really care. And if you told us my plan, because it's consistent with my values is to drink as much good wine as I can and diet, die at 67, we're good with that. Let's just plan accordingly. Right. And, um, we, we have clients that it's very important for them to leave a legacy, yeah. whether it be a conservative, um, you know, a nature conservatory, conservatorship, yeah. what's, what's the word I'm looking yeah, for? I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or to their family or to charities or whatever. And that's fine. We, we don't really care. But yeah. but let's be clear about that. And then we can build a financial plan and help you use the tools and techniques accordingly. But I really want people to stick with it. And, yeah. and, and that's so it's a little different. And, and we will even tell people when we're doing our initial kind of acquainted session with somebody, if we can't get them to articulate a little bit of that, if they can't show some self-awareness in that area, they're not a good fit for us. And we will tell them that. Because we're not, you know, we're not investment jockeys. That's not what it is that we're going to do. We're holistic financial planners. And that means we, we want to look at the whole person. I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, both of our firms, I believe, approach it the same way from what you're saying. But I think it's super important that people understand that we're not here to judge anything, any value that you have whatsoever. Like um, I always joke about the spending, <clears throat> creating like a mindful spending plan. I'm not asking necessarily that you create a budget, but just a like, how, how do you want your money to be allocated? Like, what is, what is the goal there? Because, you know, le- lifestyle creep hits. And um, sometimes when people do that exercise of where their money is going, they're, they're, they realize that it's not aligning with their values, right? Then they're willing to make more changes a lot easier when they realize that they're spending money on things that are really unimportant to them. So however you choose, we always ask like, what's a non-negotiable? If if there's anything that you spend money on that's a non-negotiable, what is that? I'm never going to try to change your mind because if I try to change your mind, you're not going to stick with it, right? Because it's a non-negotiable. It right, is something exactly. in your, it totally matches your value because it's a non-negotiable. Those kinds of questions, those um, non sort of quote unquote financial questions that are truly financial and, and back up to that. Um, it, it takes, you know, it, that, that's so important for me to know that information up front because I don't want you to feel frustrated as a client and you don't want somebody to feel frustrated as a client because we keep telling them them so they should do something and they don't, they don't feel it fits. And, and certain, you know, certain cultures, it is within their culture that they take care of, or that they have a, a particular process for where their money goes. And we cannot judge that. We cannot tell them that that's, you know, where their money shouldn't go. So it's really critical that we understand the people. And I really, I think it's great that you brought that point up. And and hopefully for people that are listening, that does take a little bit of the fear out of reaching out to a financial planner. Steve, how can people reach you if they want to they talk with you or do a discovery call with you? Yeah, thank you. It the easiest way is to go to our website and uh, make an appointment. We're a virtual firm. 
we were we were a virtual firm before, and so uh, you can just go to our website and and I it's in the it'll be in the show notes I'm sure, um, and that's the easiest way to do it. We'll do a discovery session. We call them getting acquainted. Um, I I wanted to mention one item if I may. Sure, uh, absolutely. Because, um, I mentioned early in this that I, I love to use other life experiences to teach about basic financial planning matters. And I had a couple that I wanted to share with you. Uh, this all started in, in 2013 when Downton Abbey was real popular. And uh, Nancy and I, my wife and I were watching Downton Abbey. And I thought, oh my goodness, look at all the financial planning lessons that are in Downton Abbey. And I won't go through all of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, do you remember Thomas the footman valet that was using the black market? Anyway, he was using the black market. And that's the rule of if it seems to be too good to be true, it probably is. Um, one of them was your, your financial assets are like a garden and you have to tend them. And when Matthew Crawley came on the scene, the um, the, the 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 family uh, assets were in bad disarray because um, they hadn't been taken care of, and he came in and rescued him and took them over. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I bring this up because we were watching The Wizard of Oz. I don't know about you, but we certainly spend more time watching movies now in the last year than we typically do. Mm-hmm. And my wife is the child of a of a of a Hollywood uh, actor, so mm-hmm. we watch right. a lot of movies anyway. Did you know that the Library of Congress has designated The Wizard of Oz as the most popular movie of all times? I did not know that. Yep, it's official. So we were watching The Wizard of Oz, and I was going through it, and I was saying. This is this is a, the perfect example of retirement planning. Oh, so sure. So, what is the number one thing that Dorothy keeps keeps on saying, and what is the thing that the that the good witch has her say at the end as she's clicking her her heels together? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Rule number one in finance in, in retirement planning. The second one is um, w- uh, what you do. So remember, they had this long journey, and they ended up in Oz, which is obviously Las Vegas. So the, to do a variety of things, they also they also went to the vineyards. It was an apple vineyard where they found the Tin Man. Uh, they also did a journey where they went looking at old castles, which is where they met the Wicked Witch. Um, but what you do. And the third one, and maybe the most important one, is who you do it with. And the whole point of the movie is there's no place like home. And second, it's friends. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and we can talk about the role of Toto and the role, the role of the Wicked Witch. And we can talk about um, Oz. My wife thinks that, thinks that uh, the Wizard of Oz is really, was their financial planner. I'm not quite so sure, but I understand her point. <laughs> because ultimately he had the answer and he was good hearted and he was very wise. That's why she said that, of course. But one of the things is I just I'm always amused by looking at life. And this may go back to, to the comment that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But I tend to look at everything in terms of you know financial planning lessons from Downton Abbey or estate planning lessons from, uh, from Aretha Franklin or retirement planning lessons from The Wizard of Oz. So I just wanted to share that because it gives me great enjoyment. And if I can't have a little fun, what's the point of doing this anyway? And you actually have a blog on that, correct? I do. I wrote a blog yeah. recently on The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I've had several articles published about Downton Abbey and um, estate planning tips from Aretha Franklin's songs. <laughs> 
I, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes because I think those are fun ways for people to think. And again, takes the fear out of financial planning and right. relative terms. So we'll definitely put them in the show notes. We so appreciate you being a guest on this on the show, Steve. It's been a riot chatting with you. I hope the, hope the listeners have enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed chatting with you. We'll, as we mentioned, we'll put some, some of this information in the show notes. And we hope all of you have a wonderful week and have enjoyed the show today. Thank you very much. I, I very much enjoyed it as well. I appreciate it. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at RootedPG for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.